Um, can I tell you what one of my hobbies is? If you've been on the chapel blog, you'll see that uh, I'm incredibly passionate about DIY uh, to the point of being obsessed by it and, and maybe needing deliverance ministry for that as well. But um, a number of years ago, I bought a lathe and uh, I started doing wood turning. And I found it very therapeutic. Uh, I like to take uh, bits of hardwood and, and turn them into all sorts of things. Anything from bowls to goblets to candle stands to spurtles. Uh, for if, you, if you're not a Scots person, you won't know what a spurtle is. It's a porridge stirring stick. Uh, and, and things like that. I absolutely love doing it. And um, two birthdays ago, my wife was sitting up in the balcony here. It wasn't, you know, it was, a, it was a birthday, but it wasn't like one of the special birthdays. But uh, she bought me, I think, what is actually the best birthday present I've ever had in my life. Uh, not that the other stuff she bought me was rubbish anyway. <laughs> but but this, she really did excel this year. She bought me a whole day, one-on-one teaching with a master woodturner. Wow. You know, um, if you're not interested in that stuff, you know, I'm a geek or I'm boring or something like that, but it just doesn't come much better than that. One-on-one tuition in his workshop. His wife made me lunch. It was just, we had a great day. Um, let's turn to God's Word. <laughs> One day, Jesus was preaching in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John, referring to John the Baptist, taught his disciples. So I wonder, if you could have a master class with Jesus, that was the point of the illustration earlier on, if you could have a master class with Jesus, what would you ask him for? Let me give you the background to where we are at in the story of Jesus teaching his disciples. Um, he's with them in Judea, down in the south part of Palestine. It's coming pretty close towards the latter part of year three in his public ministry, as much as I can follow the chronology. But you know, there are two things happening in Jesus' ministry. Not only is he come to proclaim good news and to speak the word of God, Jesus has actually come to spend three years with a group of people that he can multiply himself into so that they can take over the responsibility of leading the movement that he's about to birth on the day of Pentecost called the church, when the Holy Spirit comes and teaches the followers of the way how to go out into the world and to do what Jesus expects them to do. So in Jesus' ministry, I see these two strands always going hand in hand. Jesus is teaching for sure, and there's theology and doctrine in that that we need to learn and listen to. But we also need to observe what he's doing with the group of guys who are following him, particularly those who are following him most closely. And so the teaching and training for the disciples steps up a pace, and at the same time, opposition to Jesus' ministry intensifies. It's only a few months, you'll figure that out for yourselves, before he faces the agony of the cross. And it's also just a few months since that lesson of Messiahship has been learned and confirmed by Peter at Caesarea Philippi, north in Palestine, in the Galilee. So here's this question again. Can you imagine what it would like to have had Jesus as your tutor or your personal trainer? As you watched him 
and listened to him, what would have impressed you the most? If you could have a personal masterclass this week with Jesus, what would you want him to teach you? Serious question. I I really intend you in your heart and your mind to think about that and to answer it as we go on this evening. If you could have a personal masterclass this week with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, one-on-one stuff with Jesus, what would you want him to teach you? Would you like to know how to do miracles? You know, that walking on the water stuff has always intrigued me. I, I grew up on an island. And I get seasick. How about preaching? Would you like to learn from Jesus how to preach? How to captivate the crowd and how to teach them? and How to hold them and how to read their thoughts so that you know what you're speaking is actually answering questions that they're asking? How about learning how to lead in your family, in the church. Or maybe you would just want to know some carpentry skills. Because remember, Jesus was also a carpenter. It's been said of religious learning that more is caught than is taught. For many years, the church has neglected the principles of mentoring and discipling, and the resultant neglect has weakened the faith and the spiritual walk of many believers. The key that the principal key to growing spiritually is to look to Jesus and learn from him. And so tonight I want to focus with you on what we can learn from Jesus' teaching on prayer and on the example of how he faced opposition. So let's look and learn. Learning prayer. Let's read again the Lord's example there in verse 1. One day... Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Let's consider that for a moment. Whatever other truths may be gleaned from this verse, one thing stands out for me supremely. And this is that John the Baptist and Jesus Christ were men of prayer. Our tendency may be to think of John as the greatest of the prophets, or, or maybe even um, a forerunner to the Christian martyrs. We may think of Jesus as a great teacher, a healer, a miracle worker, etc. But more than anything else they did or said, they teach us from their own example and experience the priority that we must give to prayer. We're often exhorted um, in church life, whether from the pulpit or in magazines or in articles or Bible studies, that, that really um, we must give a very high priority to prayer. And I don't know how you would respond if I stood here and for the next five minutes said, you know, there's a prayer meeting on such and such a day and there's another one on another, another time and you really need to be there. Um, probably most of you would just get annoyed uh, a little bit agitated by the fact that you felt harangued and pressurized into coming to the prayer meeting when really you're just so busy you can't fit it in. But look and learn. I'm not going to tell you to be there, but look and learn. Look what Jesus is doing. Look what the disciples are able to see from his example and the priority that he had. 
The request to be taught how to pray is the only example the Bible records of the disciples asking Jesus for teaching or training in any subject. They had seen with their own eyes the relationship that the miracles, the teaching, and the healings bore to Jesus' prayer life. Um, You may be somebody who enjoys good preaching. You know, good preaching can be an academic thing. It can actually be an entertainment thing with no real resultant change or cause or effect that makes any difference to us at the end of the day. But preaching that's anointed by the Spirit because the preacher and the church seek God earnestly in prayer accomplishes the purposes of God for those that hear. And Jesus' disciples saw that in his life. Jesus reminds them of their priorities in prayer that he had first taught them in the Sermon on the Mount almost a year before when he was still up in Galilee. And so we come to verse 2 there in Luke 11. The disciples' model. Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Ever since I was a little boy in church, I um, started going to church when I was two years old. And uh, I can rem- remember this being referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, indeed, it was something that we actually prayed in school every day in a secular school. The headmaster was a Christian. And, and we prayed this every day in school. We prayed it every time we went to church. Uh, Presbyterian church and the minister led us as we were taught to say... Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be you. And, and we just learned that. And it was always referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But you know, it isn't really the Lord's Prayer at all. For example, Jesus never needed to ask for forgiveness for sin, because he never committed any. So he's not going to be praying this prayer. He's teaching his disciples, his followers, you and I, how to pray in this way. If you want to see the real Lord's Prayer, that's found in John 17. But nor only is this a prayer that we need to pray, either individually or corporately. Um, It's a prayer that we need to pray these words from a believing and a sincere heart. And, And then there will be nothing wrong with reciting them publicly. But what's important is that we understand that this is a pattern for prayer. The opening words remind us that it is only when we have a right spiritual relationship with God that we can enjoy the experience of true spiritual praying. It just kind of came to me this week, and I think I need to say it, just for the sake of those who maybe have grown up in the church like I did. But you know, the truth is, if we haven't actually come to God through faith in Christ, then we can't actually address Him as Father. I know that He's the Father of the heavenly lights, that in that sense, He's the Father of all people. But what Jesus is talking about here is an intimacy whereby we address him uh, in a way that we know that we're in relationship with him. And the only way to come to the Father, Jesus says, is through him. Through repentance and faith and accepting Jesus as Savior. 
And so this is truly a disciple's prayer. But before we can ask anything for ourselves, notice the priority in what Jesus is teaching his disciples. And subsequently, he teaches us now in the church through his words. Before we can ask anything for ourselves or for others, we must honor God's holy name. Or as in Matthew's parallel, that we must also learn to seek the priorities of his kingdom. See, if God is going to answer my prayers, I must be concerned for the glory of his name. And equally be submissive to his will. Prayer is not about us going to God and asking him to bless our plans. Um, I've been a pastor for about 15 years now altogether. And uh, experience has taught me that some Christians, while asking, I believe, out of sincerity and hope, actually seek God's face and ask for things that are not according to his will. And sometimes great against uh, the hearer who knows that that isn't in, in keeping with God's will. I remember a lady very sincerely in a prayer meeting one night saying, I know that on Friday that so-and-so who's a Christian is going to get married to a non-Christian. And I know that that's not in accordance with your word. But oh God, please allow them to be happy. And I'm thinking, No. Oh God, please show your child the mistake that he's about to make and Friday might never happen. See, we can ask for things, not according to God's will, but say, God, i got these plans. I'm going to do these things. Can you just bless them? And God says, come to me as your father who knows what is best for you. Honor my name and seek my will in order that I might respond to you. It's rather in prayer about us seeking his face and synchronizing or submitting our will to his in order for him to work his will and purposes through us. Warren Wearsby has described prayer as asking God to accomplish what he wants so his name is glorified, his kingdom is extended and strengthened and his will is done. Now here in Charlotte Chapel, Uh, with our rich heritage of expository preaching and reverence for the Word of God, I hardly need to remind anyone that the best way to discern the will of God is to know the Word of God. The best way to know the will of God is to know the... the, Sorry, the, the best way to discern the will of God is to know the Word of God. Those who say, well, I've prayed about it and God says it's all right. And then go and do something that is contrary to his word are not, in fact, following his will. So we see here that this model prayer teaches us priorities for, really for those who want to be submissive to their father's will. God, whatever you have for me, I'm coming before you to allow my will to become submissive to your will. That's, that's where this praying begins as Jesus teaches it in his master class. The child of God who reveres the name and the priorities of God's kingdom knows that their father won't withhold any good thing so they can expectantly and humbly ask him to provide for their physical and their spiritual needs. And maybe I should have put that in another order for their spiritual and their physical needs. Just just notice the scope here of what's covered in this request. First of all, there's physical, 
and material provision. Remember, Jesus teaches, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things, the things that the pagans run after, food, clothes, houses, cars, well, not cars then, but you know, all the materialistic things that seem so important to a modern generation. Jesus says, don't run after these things as if they're of first priority. He says, I know you need them. I know you need a place to live. I know you need clothes to wear. I know you need a job. I know, I know you have all that needs. I know that. But seek first the priorities of my kingdom. And all these other things will be added to you. The second thing covered in the scope of this request are spiritual and moral development. Paul writes to the believers in Philippi and says that of this one thing I'm utterly convinced that he who began a good work in you will continue it to completion. Really, the concept is to perfection unto the day of the Lord's appearing. Jesus is concerned not just to save our souls, he's concerned to develop us spiritually, to grow us, to sanctify us, to see us become the purified people that God the Father sees us already as in Christ. God's concerned about that. And so Jesus teaches us to pray in this way that we might develop spiritually and morally. And also thirdly, covered in the scope of this, is divine security and guidance. Remember, the one who is teaching this is the same one who says, I will be with you always, right to the very end of the age. Now, Christians, we need to stop and pause and really think deeply sometimes. Meditate on the truth that God is saying. There is nowhere at any time, in any circumstance, that God is not with you. That's the promise. And yet sometimes in life we can become fearful, we can appear to lack direction and guidance, but God's right there with you. That's the promise. Look around, seek him, find him, he's right there. And that's what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching from his example. He's given the disciples a model. Now what else is in this passage? Let's continue to read on in verse 5. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now this is a parable. And in this parable, uh, we're not supposed to understand that God is like the grumpy old neighbor. For a start, God never sleeps. Now, the lesson is not one of comparison, but is one of contrast. 
In ancient Near Eastern culture, traditions and customs were very different from those in modern Britain. Many people in our society today don't even know their neighbours' names, so they're not going to be terribly comfortable about popping round to borrow some food or cooking utensils at whatever time of the day they might need them. Yet, you know, it's not so long ago that communities did look out for their members, much in the same way as the people in Jesus' day did. So we're not to think of this as an absurd or even an outrageous request. The reality is, in Jesus' day, this sort of thing was very common practice. It kind of worked like this. When someone, either a friend or a stranger, came to visit other members of the community, uh, an individual in the community, then all other members of the community knew that they also had a responsibility for sake of honour, to be interested in and to be able to provide for uh, that stranger who was visiting There was no 24-hour supermarket shopping. And in a community where people would have known who had been baking bread that day, who better to call on at midnight than the person who had already been drying their bread out in the sun, proving it. Uh, It was known in the community who had provision. So when the stranger comes in, then who better to go to than the person who has? That's what's happening here in this community. Um, we're doing a community study in a couple of weeks' time in our home fellowships. You'll think about the way in which we as a church could have this incredible impact in our society if we got back to the place of being truly the biblical community that we could be. You know, it's actually quite difficult for new Christians sometimes to get the concept of what is really our individualistic, uh, I own my own stuff feeling that many Western Christians have. I, remember a guy in the hometown where I grew up. Um, he, he was one of the, the street bums. He, he was a, a worthy, as we called him. He hung around and he drank cheap liquor and beer all day and, and was just a bit of a nuisance. Well, he came to faith in Jesus. And, of course, the church was very, very excited about the fact that this guy who was known in the community, being a drunk, had come off the streets and, and it was just great. And he'd be kinda, well, he became a friend and a nuisance to both Jeanette and myself. Um, uh, because he just uh, he, he wanted just to be right in there. He was the kind of guy that came into our house. We'd open door policy, and uh, he would come into the house, and we'd be sitting watching the telly at night, and he would stick his head in through the sitting room door and says, I'm putting the kettle on. Would you like a coffee? Uh, he just kind of fitted straight into the community. And one day he got so excited, he'd been reading Acts 2.42, uh, following where it said that the believers had all things in common, and, and they shared everything with each other. And as anyone had need, people would sell stuff and provide came round to our house and he was so excited because he'd been reading God's Word. He says, this is amazing. He says, God has just told me from his Word today that everything that you own is mine. <laughs> and he was, he, was, he was really, really elated about it. And I said, oh, you know, can I, can I, just, can I, you know, can I explain this? And he said, oh, it works both ways. Everything I have is yours. <laughs> and at the time he had a council flat and a dog yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. But you know, like in this community, people really did care. And they really did understand that people had needs. And they did provide. So Jesus is teaching this contrast of how much greater God is, even than the best of their communities. And you know, the reality is that there is no one better placed or resourced to meet your need than your Heavenly Father. And that's why Jesus, I believe, is using this illustration. 
Those to whom he addresses it know the traditions and the protocol. So Jesus is basically saying, if my supposition is correct, go on, don't hold back. Ask, seek, knock. Your father, who knows your needs even before you utter a word, is eagerly waiting to respond. Now God knows all your needs, but you must ask. That's also there. You know, we could conclude, well, if God knows all my needs, well, he just better give it to me then. But actually, your Heavenly Father wants you to come. He's got it all there for you. Whatever the basic need is, maybe tonight your need is for salvation. God knows you need saving. I know God knows you need saving because while you're still a sinner, he sends his Son into the world to die for you. But Jesus dying on the cross for you does not actually impute to you the merits of salvation until you come before the Father and say, I realize I'm a sinner. Please save me. You may have other needs of much less importance than salvation. And you might say, well, God, I need a job. God, I need a spouse. God, I need healing. God, I need deliverance. Well, God knows everything about everybody all the time. But he needs you to come and say, please may I have. Lord, I'm seeking your best will for me. What is it that I ought to be asking for? Lord, this thing seems closed to me just now. Can it open, please? You need to ask. And yet, James, the Lord's half-brother, teaches the community that he writes to with his letter in James chapter 4, verses 2 following. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And he, he develops that teaching further and saying, actually, sometimes when you ask, you ask with the wrong motivation, so you still don't get it. But notice how Jesus develops this contrast even further within the next few verses. Let's read again in God's word from verse 11. The Spirit's reward. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Not only is our Heavenly Father nothing like the grumpy neighbor, Neither is he like, even like, the best of human fathers. God, your heavenly Father, is so much better than even the best earthly father imaginable. I know that for some it's very painful to hear mention of father because the relationship you had with your earthly father was either non-existent or was very cruel. But no matter how good or bad your earthly father is, try to imagine the best earthly father possible. And Jesus is saying, listen, get this principle that your heavenly father is by far so much, much more than your earthly father could ever be. These are kind of bizarre examples, but they simply reinforce the truth that God will only respond to our prayers with kindness. Uh, Mrs. Graham uh, Billy Graham's widow wife 
but who died a few weeks ago. I heard her say once, you know, she says, as a young woman, I am so glad that God didn't answer my prayer on a number of occasions, otherwise I wouldn't have married the right man. She was honest enough to say, like, God, I want a husband, and I want to marry so-and-so. But it was God's will and purpose that she be married to Billy Graham as his spouse and partner, uh, to be there as a supporter and to share in the ministry that God so richly blessed him in. God knows best. So whether he says yes or no or wait to a specific request, we can trust him. This case is presented in what Walter Lifefield refers to as a two-step argument. He says, first of all, God is our heavenly father and will do no less for his children than would an earthly father. And secondly, he says, God is perfect and will do much more than a sinful man would. The parallel reading in Matthew refers to the father as not withholding good gifts from his children. Luke very specifically here mentions the promised Holy Spirit. Do you know, of all the blessings and provisions that God lavishly pours out on his children, there is no greater gift than the Holy Spirit. There is no greater gift than the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no conviction of sin. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no conversion experience. Without the Holy Spirit... There is no power to live the Christian life. And yet, sadly, there are many people who profess to be Christians who have never earnestly or consistently sought the Father's face requesting that which he most eagerly desires to give them, the Holy Spirit. Consider the contrast between the Old and the New Covenants. Under the law, only a few people ever received the anointing of the Spirit. Under grace, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh, men and women alike, from every walk of life, from all nations, and in every generation of the church. And I put in my notes as I wrote that, exciting, huh? It's exciting that God, the Holy Spirit, who is God, third person in the Trinity, That he can be poured out into my life. That he can be poured out into your life. And that's what Jesus is saying. Listen, you might have many requests, but actually your greatest need is for the Holy Spirit. And God will not withhold them when you ask. Sadly, many would-be disciples haven't even enrolled, let alone graduated in the school of prayer. So we come back to that question in the master class. Would you like to be taught how to pray? And turning from that lesson in prayer, Luke then records for our benefit a lesson on how to handle opposition. And I'll spend much less time on this because I realize that we're going to run out of time if I don't. So facing opposition, let's read on at this blasphemous allegation in verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Talk about missing the point. Now I see three distinct reactions to what Jesus is doing 
and has been doing for all the time that he's been teaching these group of disciples, he's exerting his power and authority over the kingdom of Satan. And as he does this, particularly in relation to this man who is mute by his spirit, some marvel. You notice that? Some marvel. Some are amazed, the scriptures tell us. Now, this may appear to be a positive response, but on reflection, I just found this to be so different from the awe and reverence that strikes fear into the heart of sinners. Remember some of the earlier miracles? The disciples have just caught a a huge catch of fish. A miracle has been performed by the Master. And Peter, in Luke 5 and 8, declares, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. In John 4 and 53, after the nobleman's uh, son has been healed, he and all his family believe in Jesus as the Savior of the world and as the Son of God. And here Jesus performs this miracle and the crowds go, wow, or ah, they're amazed. But it doesn't have that deep impact of changing them. Not all of the early miracles provided such results. But what I think Jesus is is wanting us to, to understand from his word here. Um, If you were to turn, you don't have time, but if you were to turn to Hebrews 12 and verse 28, the writer there says, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Here that word awe carries the connotation of what commentators in a previous generation called shamefastness. Faced with the reality of God's power through Jesus, over all things evil, it ought to bring to us a sense of shame. ought to bring to us a sense of deep reverence and awe. Anything less is not the response that Jesus is looking for. Secondly, some people just get the wrong idea completely. Failing to grasp what is happening, some even accuse the Son of God as being in league with Satan. Beelzebub was just one of the names of the Philistine god Baal. Now, this is a very serious accusation, and unless repented of, would have serious consequences. And thirdly, some tempt him. It's really a continuation of the last accusation. What, in fact, these people are doing is challenging Jesus to prove that he is the Son of God. Oh, don't these words sound familiar? If you are the Son of God, who said these? Satan, when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God. And maybe that's where you're at tonight. I I believe in God. If I could have some sort of miraculous sign, not on earth, but from heaven, which is the request here. So I'll tell you what, God. If you really are God, then I want you to prove it to me. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. Your response is that he is God. Therefore, trust him. And he will prove to you beyond any shadow of doubt that he is who he says he is. We learn a lot, I think, from observing the way in which Jesus faces this opposition. And in verses 17 through 22, we get this divine rebuff. Let's read it through together. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself will fall. 
If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. Three things. Their supposition is, according to Jesus, illogical. Clearly, they've not thought it through that the kingdom divided against itself will fall. Secondly, it's self-convicting. Because if Jesus drives out demons by the power of Beelzebub, and they can also drive out demons, who do they do it by? And thirdly, it's an admission of Jesus' power and authority. Because they're recognizing that Jesus is stronger than demons, and Jesus is stronger than Satan, a point that Jesus is very happy to verify. And again, maybe you caught somewhere tonight uh, under the effects of evil oppression, maybe direct involvement in something that's dark and sinister, and the assurance from God's word is that Jesus is stronger and can bring liberty and set you free from that. You know, whenever you face false accusations, maybe... Um, something even that's uh, blasphemous, then just remember that as a child of God, you've nothing to prove. Respond in the way that Jesus does. You may need to clarify any points of inaccuracy, but don't even attempt to defend yourself. You need to learn this truth, that at the end of the day, what heaven knows to be true about you is far more important than what people will ever say or think about you. So let's bring this sermon home. In conclusion, the practical application in verse 23 through 28. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes away and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. The final conclusion of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You cannot be neutral when it comes to the things of God. You're either for him or you're against him. The deep meaning behind what Jesus is saying here is that Not that if a demon gets cast out of somebody that it will always be worse for that person afterwards. What's happening here is that the demon has left this man and has left him clean and empty and he has not sought the Spirit of God to indwell him and empower him that would be his protection against any marauding evil spirit ever coming by. And so he said, I'm going to have nothing to do with anything, evil or good. That man's condition is worse than actually if he had signed up for one or the other. So Jesus says, fill yourself up with me. Seek me. Get filled with my Holy Spirit, the one that the Father won't withhold from you. Now notice that as we close, the final comments in this master lesson in prayer and deliverance, the woman in the crowd shouts out words of approval and blessing. 
Are these commendable? Well, words alone without actions and obedience are not commendable. In fact, they're lamentable. Back to the master class in wood turning. Jeanette bought me that in good faith that it would improve my skills and I would become a better wood turner. I went on the class. I really enjoyed it. Best birthday present I ever had. Do you know, since the day that I did the class, I haven't turned a single article in just over two and a half years. We can attend as many Christian conferences, as many conventions as we can afford. We can sit and listen to good preaching week in and week out. We can even publicly bless those who provide such things for us. But it amounts to nothing until we step out in faith and obedience and begin to do what the Word of God tells us we must do. Obeying the Word of God and applying its practical teaching to our moral and our spiritual lives is all that matters. Let's pray.